New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. Um, I have uh, known Alan. Uh, it's funny, I've known Alan on and off uh, in, uh, for, for many years, but actually just in the past little while, Alan and I have uh, forged a, a very a good uh, relationship through one thing and another. Um, and as I was thinking about today, we, we have, as, as a group of people coming to New Horizon this week, we have been so blessed in the whole area of leadership and teaching and leadership. Just to remind you that on Monday, um, Paul Coulter spoke on this idea of powerful leaders uh, and the whole issue of misuse of power and leadership. And then on Tuesday and Wednesday, Alistair Bill and Alison Mark covered the whole issue of refreshment in ministry, which is so needed. And then yesterday, Paul uh, spoke on uh, again on leadership and the conduct of leaders, but also the need to care for our leaders. Uh, and today, Alan is going to look at this whole area of the crucible of leadership. So we're looking forward to all that Alan uh, will bring to us. Um, but just as we gather here, let's pray uh, for Alan now. Let's pray. Father God, into this time that we set aside, may you remove from us and help us to remove those distractions, um, maybe the time to collect kids or whatever it might be into this afternoon, and allow us to focus in uh, yet again on what you would say to us. May our hearts uh, be open to hear uh, you, you speak to us. And Lord, for your servant, Alan, bless him for all that he has prepared Bless him um, for the material that he has put together into his book. And we pray, Lord, that as we uh, sit and, and take from him, uh, that you will speak every word uh, that he says that they will come from you. Uh, Lord, that we may uh, hear from, from you uh, through Alan. So bless him now as he comes to speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks, Johnny, for the introduction, and uh, thank you to all of you who've, who've come along. I realize it's, uh, you know, with the weather like that, you probably want to beat the queues on the beach or something like that, um, but I appreciate you coming along. We're going to be talking about the crucible of leadership. Um, I've recently published a book uh, which has that title, uh, and I said to someone the other day that the book is not as painful as the title sounds, uh, because the crucible of leadership does, does sound quite painful. Uh, but we're basically going to be, be going to be talking about the the the, the idea that uh, just as as leaders, uh, whether it's in a church or whether it's an organisation or a school or wherever it might be, just as leaders uh, seek to shape uh, the organisation or the culture of the organisation that they find themselves in, I think leadership also shapes the leader as a person. In that sense. Leadership is, is something of a crucible, and I'll talk a little bit more about where that concept of the crucible comes from. Um, the way this is going to work is I'm not going to talk the whole time, um, and nor am I going to do a kind of lecture and then give you opportunity for feedback at the end of it. What I want to do is to try to make it a little bit interactive in the sense that um, I want you to have opportunities to respond uh, bit by bit as we walk through a number of themes, what we're going to talk about is several things that I think leaders need to learn and will learn, uh, wise leaders will learn these things during the course of their leadership. Um, and as we talk about each of the themes, uh, I'll stop and give you a, a moment or two to reflect a little bit. And the, 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 the sheets, which have um, a bit of an outline of questions on them, um, those, those will give you something to, to, to write uh, on uh, in, in response. But I hope that, I mean, we're not, we're not going to cover uh, everything there is to say about all of these themes uh, in the time that we have available. So I hope that I will, what will happen this morning is that it will begin a process of thought and reflection um, that you will be able to continue. Uh, if you've got the book, uh, the book will help you with that. There, there are even more questions in the book. Uh, if you don't have the book, you may want to buy one. Let me just mention that the books very quickly. I appreciate Gary. Uh, and his team setting this up. Obviously, there are copies of my book on there. There are a couple of other books that, that I'm recommending. Um, there's one, so as I'm looking at it, there's a book called Lead, simply called Lead by Paul Tripp. Um, I'm 
I've been coming around New Horizon long enough to remember when Paul Tripp was here, but probably 20 years ago. How many of you remember that? Paul Tripp, the guy with the big mustache, and he came three years in a row and did amazing seminars uh, in, the, in the big tent. Uh, so Paul is a very prolific writer, um, and uh, this is actually his second book on leadership, written really for church leaders. And it's written, in a, it's written really addressing not just individual leaders, but leaders in community. So if you're, for example, an elder in a, in a local church or you're on the PCC or whatever the structure might be, it's the kind of book that you read together um, and the recognition that leadership is something of a community project. Um, on the other side of it, there's a book by Todd Balsinger. Todd Balsinger is a professor in Fuller Seminary. Um, he's, written, he's written several books, but probably his, his, his best-known couple of books are one is Canoeing the Mountains, um, which he wrote a few years ago, which is really about leading change, um, leading particularly uh, dramatic change or, or significant change, what he calls, and it's called by other writers, adaptive leadership, ad adaptive change. It, it, that's what the book is about, canoeing the mountains. Obviously, you can't really canoe mountains. You need to know a little bit about American history, and I forget, it was, a, it was somebody attempting to discover the Northwest Passage uh, in, in America, and they'd been canoeing. Um, they'd been canoeing long rivers to get to a certain point. They hadn't realized, because nobody had been there before, nobody had explored it before, they hadn't realized that the, that the terrain to the west was mountainous, and all they had was canoes, and they thought, well, how on earth are we going to manage to canoe the mountains? Well, you can't really canoe mountains, you've got to operate in a different way. So he built that book about change around that theme. Tempered resilience is about the kind of leader you need to be in order to bring about change. So again, if you're a church leader or if you're leading in an organization and you're trying, to, you're saying, you know, we need to do something really quite different, you're going to need resilience because there will be resistance to what you try to do. So that's Todd Balsinger. And then the other one is Lead Like Joshua, Derek Tidball. Uh, Derek is an author, again, of many books uh, on, on all kinds of uh, subjects. Uh, this, is a, this is a very accessible book, really, that walks through the story of Joshua. Um, and, and draws out lessons. Derek brings, uh, was, that the, was that the chair of the, that was the host of the meeting who told us all to switch our phones off, did he? And his phone has just gone. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. Mine's, I just, I'll not back and check mine. I think I checked mine earlier on. Um, but it, it walks through the story of Joshua with, with maybe 23 or something, one per chapter, uh, lessons and observations about leadership. Um, the value of it is that Derek handles the text of Joshua really well in a very accessible way, but also he, he brings uh, considerable awareness of leadership issues, both from uh, his reading, but also from his own experience uh, as, a, as a Bible college principal. So recommend um, those, those books as a, you know, as a sort of support for those of you who want to read a little bit further around the subject. It would be helpful to me to get a little bit of an idea just uh, about um, where you're all at in terms of thinking about leadership. Um, some of you may be here because, you know, it's Moses, and Moses is your favorite character in the Bible. Uh, others of you are here because you're involved in leadership or you have been involved in leadership. How many of you would, you're, are currently in a role where you describe yourself as a leader and you're paid to do it? And that could be school, could be church, okay? Um, how many of you are uh, like lay leaders in, in a church, maybe, you know, whether that's elders or members of a church council, okay? Um, are others in, uh, and I mean, I'm seeing, there's a guy in the front and he hasn't put his hand up for any of it, and I happen to know, <laughs> I know the story behind it, so uh, he's, yeah, I'm not saying, you've got a business, which you lead, don't you? Yeah. Um, okay, so hopefully the hopefully what we're going to talk about will be be relevant to, to all of that and I think as well it's it's great to see some uh, a mix of ages here some of you're older and you've probably been through many crucibles some of you are younger and you're heading out into the end of the, the whole thing we've got some students some recent students here uh, and I think that what we're going to talk about this morning if you're older it'll I, hopefully it will give you uh, a, a way of reflecting on where you've been and if you're younger it will give you some sense of Here's what you might anticipate as, as you go along. Now, this idea of the crucible, um, th there's the definition of it. It's a container in which metals or other substances can be heated to a very high temperature. So uh, the other, the other it, so the, the, it's obviously a literal container that people tried to melt metals in. Um, it's become known then um, as, a, as a term for a severe test where you feel that you've really been in, in a situation where the heat and the pressure have been extreme. Uh, 
Um, that has become uh, one of the ways that it's used. And also another use of it is that it's a place or situation in which different cultures or styles can mix together to produce something new and exciting. Now, a number of years ago, uh, maybe 20 or so, 20 maybe more years ago, a couple of, of leadership scholars in America, Warren Bennis and Robert Thomas, um, decided that they would like to find out something about um, our, do, 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 do different generations of, of leaders, or do they look different? Are they different? Uh, what impact does the era in which they have grown up have on them? So they took uh, one group of people, they took two groups of people, lots of people in, in each group, interviewed them about the story of how they'd become leaders. Uh, one lot they called uh, geezers. These were the old people, the older people uh, at their time of writing. These were people who had really come of age just after the Second World War uh, in an era that they called the era of scarcity. Um, and then the next group, they called them the geezers. They were essentially the, gra the grandchildren generation. So they'd come of age in the 1980s when internet and there's all the choices and, uh, and all of that. So they wanted to see if there was a difference between the two groups in terms of how their era had shaped them. Uh, they discovered some differences, but they also discovered that everybody talked about a, an experience that was a, an intense, transformative experience. And so they called it, they called it a crucible. Uh, a little later, um, I, I'm trying to see, I need eyes in the back of my head. A little later, um, one of those authors, Robert Thomas, developed the idea a little bit. And he said, look, probably in a career, there are three broad types of crucible. Um, one is new territory. And any of you who've just started a new job, uh, you know, you think about the learning curve. Sometimes you maybe use an expression like a baptism of fire. Um, I think from my own experience, having been a pastor for 20 years before I went into more into the teaching work, um, having been a pastor for 20 years, I can look back, uh, I can look back at a particular pastoral situation that I found myself confronted with as a, as a young, very green pastor in a church, um, discovering that uh, the marriage of one of the senior elders uh, of, of the church was in serious trouble, and I had really no clue what to do. Um, I remember discovering it on a, on a Sunday afternoon at the end of a service. And I've talked to lots of church leaders, people who've gone through church leadership, and they often talk about finding themselves in a situation that they just were totally unprepared of. Remember one guy who, who uh, is now retired from a fairly fruitful pastoral ministry, but he talked about going into the pastoral, the pastoral ministry and uh, finding himself confronted with various situations. He said, I didn't have a baldy notion what I was supposed to be doing. Uh, and it's not just church, I think. I think it's in all kinds of situations that you find yourself confronted with this new territory idea and you're gonna have to learn some stuff very quickly. That's usually at the beginning. Somewhere in the middle, you then begin, and maybe it doesn't take very long, but you then begin to discover another thing that Robert Thomas referred to as reversals. These are setbacks and challenges. Uh, they're crises that you experience. Uh, they may be crises to do with the organization that you're involved in leading. Uh, they may be crises that, that are more personal crises. Uh, and I think my observation, uh, in, in certainly in, in uh, church leadership, uh, my observation is that personal crises in, almost inevitably spill over into the church. And church crises, leadership crises, almost inevitably spill over into personal life. It's very difficult to keep those separate. So there's setbacks and so on. And the third area that he talked about, Robert Thomas talked about, uh, was isolation, where maybe you know, the leader finds him or herself removed from a position of leadership. Unemployment might be the thing. Um, there's a failure that has led to them having to, 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 to step away from it, hasn't worked or, or, or whatever it might be. And they find themselves going through this situation of being isolated from their place of leadership. It could be illness. Um, you know, sometimes leaders maybe you know, hit a period of depression or burnout uh, and they're separated from their work for a year or, or even longer. Um, those are some of the, the, the kinds of, of experiences that people, that people have. Um, that I've already talked about. Um, and, but let, let me begin then to try to talk a little bit about Moses and, and where, we're gonna, where we're gonna go this morning. Um, this quote from Ruth Healy Barton, 
she says, I've been drawn to the story of Moses because I found it to be so complete in illustrating the different aspects of leadership and so unflinchingly honest about the challenges leaders experience. I'm just going to move this again because I need to be able to glance at that screen. You don't want to see the back of my head. Um, so uh, Ruth Healy Barton from a book called... Um, Oh, it's this, it's this, something to do with this, I've forgotten the title, Soul of Your Leadership. Some of you may have, may have read that. Um, but the, 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 whole, the whole story of Moses, and I've been drawn to the story of Moses as well. Obviously in the Bible, there are, there's a whole array of leaders, um, all of them, f apart from one, uh, fallen and imperfect, many of them deeply flawed. Um, but there's only a handful of, of leaders really where you get a, a, whole, a, a whole range of, of discussion about them, a whole narrative about them. David would be one, obviously. Um, Paul in the New Testament. But also Moses. And there's a tremendous amount of space that's given to the narrative of Moses' life, which means it's a very rich resource. If you want to say, well, what does a leader's life look like? Moses is a tremendously rich resource to go to um, in, that, in that regard. So like Ruth Healy Barton, I've been drawn to the story of Moses. Um, D.L. Moody, the famous American evangelist from another era, uh, divided Moses' life into 40 years. Well, he didn't really do it. Stephen did it in his sermon in Acts 7. But you can split Moses' 120 years of his lifetime into uh, three periods of 40. Moody said um, he spent the first 40 years of his life thinking he was a somebody. That's the 40 years he's grown up as a prince in Egypt. He spent the middle 40 years of his life discovering he was a nobody. That's his 40 years wandering around the Midianite desert looking after his father-in-law's sheep. And he spent the final 40 years of his life discovering what God is able to do through a nobody. I don't remember where I first heard that. I didn't hear it directly from Dale Moody, but uh, I don't remember where I first heard it, but it has stuck with me uh, for years. And I think it's tremendously helpful, uh, not only in understanding Moses' life and what's going on there, but I think also for those of us who are leaders in reflecting on our own stories, because I think we probably, our, our lives may not divide quite as neatly as that, and some of these phases may be somewhat cyclical, they, they, may, be, they may repeat. But I think all of us go through a formative stage where we're learning, you know, maybe that's, that's, that's uh, getting a qualification, it's the early stages of training, um, as Moses was developing during those first 40 years of his life. Um, we go through, I think many of us go through wilderness experience, as Moses goes through that middle 40 years of his life. Uh, it may not be 40 years, but for many of us, it, it happens where we go through a stage of thinking, do you know what? I'm sort of on the sidelines here. I'm not really sure what's going on. This is not what I was expecting. Many of us go through that. Some of you may be grappling with that even at the moment uh, where, where you are. And then there's the active stage where we're actually involved in leadership. Uh, things are moving. Uh, that's the, the stage that obviously we get a lot of narrative about Moses' life in relation to that. Um, again, for Moses, it's kind of linear. You know, okay, you go through your formative stage, then you have the wilderness stage, and then you have the active stage. I don't think it's as neat as that in, in our journeys. Um, you know, some of you are in, are in professions where, you know, you'll do, a bit of, you'll do a bit of work in your career, and then you maybe have some professional development. So there's training and formation that's happening even after you've started your work. Uh, the wilderness thing can happen. You can come out of the wilderness. You have another season of the wilderness later on. So it, it's a kind of, uh, it's a bit of a, a mixed uh, stage. And as I say, there are cycles to it. What I want you to do, and this is the first slide, I think, at the top of your, at the top of your notes. Just take a moment and think about where you're at at the moment. Those of you who are in leadership of any kind, think about where you're at. How would you describe it? Would you say that at the moment this is a formative stage? Would you say that, You've been involved in stuff, but you feel a bit sidelined. It's a bit of a wilderness stage. Or would you say, do you know what? I'm, I'm you know, full steam ahead, uh, really active. Things are, are really moving. That's, that's the point that, that I'm at at the moment. Just, just take a moment. I'm not, and by the way, you're not going to have to share all, all this. You know, there may be a little bit of space at the end to share one or two things, but there's not going to be any obligation on anybody to, to speak or share personal stuff with, with uh, anybody else. But just think about your own, your own story just for a moment and see if you can identify where you are. Do you remember I said at the beginning, this is really only gonna be a start and I hope, that it, I hope it generates some reflection so you can see, you, you know, I'll not be able to give it. This is really, you know, this is the kind of stuff if we had all day or the whole weekend that we, were, that we were together, we could get into a lot more detail on this. So it's just gonna, 
It's going to touch some things, and I do hope it will inspire you to, to, to continue reflecting. Um, in terms of the lessons then from Moses' life, and I want to try to cover eight. Um, the, the first thing that I want you to notice about his life is, and a lesson for us, is that you don't actually get there by yourself. If you think where you are, where you are at the moment, you know, and I, you know, there are different rules and different leadership roles that are represented in the in the tent this morning. But if you think about how you got there, you haven't got there by yourself. Um, now, if you have a Bible with you, uh, Exodus three uh, is the reference here. Exodus three, the beginning of I'm sorry, Exodus two, the beginning of Moses' story. Uh, you see it's, it begins the birth of Moses. The chap, Exodus 1 gives us the background uh, where things have got really difficult for the Hebrews. There's this kind of ethnic uh, uh, cleansing that, that's happening, the oppression uh, by the killing of the baby boys. Um, and uh, you've got this little bit of narrative that begins, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. She placed the child in it, put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. Her attendants were walking along the riverbank, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, she answered. So the girl went, got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. There's an awful lot we could say uh, about uh, that little that little section, um, but the 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 one thing I want to focus on uh, at just at the moment for our purposes this morning is that if it had not been for the actions of three women, uh, specifically his mother Moses' mother, uh, his sister Miriam, and the daughter of Pharaoh, if it had not been for what they did, we would never have heard of Moses. Um, he was born into very particular circumstances. Uh, in a way, if, if he'd been, you know, if you could imagine if people were being lined up and said, when would you like to be born and where would you like to be born? You would not have chosen to be born as a Hebrew boy in Egypt at this particular point in history. It was about the worst, the worst possible set of circumstances. Yet he was born into a family of faith and he was born into a people uh, to whom God had made great promises through Abraham. So it's really, you know, born at the worst of times, but kind of born with all of these, all of these hopes and all of these promises that were there. Um, and none of us, you know, we think about, I don't know if you ever think about it, none of us actually got to choose the moment when we would be born, the place we would be born and the family into which we would be born. None of us, get, you don't get asked that. Um, and it might be interesting for you to think about what your life would have been like if you had been born at a different time in a different place, say you'd been born 200 years earlier and you were born in Asia rather than born in Europe. You know, for example, I see there's at least one person in the room who I think was born in Asia. Uh, but if you're born in a very different part of the world at a very different time. I had a, had a conversation about this a couple of weeks ago uh, with a couple of German theology students. And one of them was a real philosopher. And he said, well, of course, you know, if you were born at a different time in a different place, you wouldn't actually be you. So you couldn't be thinking about it at all. But you know, you know what I mean? Uh, the point is that there's stuff that has shaped your life and you've had absolutely no control over it. And some of the, just as it's true for Moses, that some of the decisions that were made that affected his future, those decisions were made by other people. So I think it's true for us that not only the circumstances into which we are born, but also people around us have often made decisions, have often had an impact into our lives, and without those people, we would not be either who we are or where we are. Now, I want you to go back to your, your sheet um, and make a list of five people. Don't, don't need to take long on this, but five people who have helped to shape you. It may not have been as dramatic as Moses, 
uh, with people saving his life. But who are some of the people that have helped to shape you and without whom you would not be who you are or where you are today? Take a couple of minutes to do that. And again, it's just the beginning. Um, I have a friend who told me that he did this, this kind of exercise in a labyrinth on a spiritual retreat. And he came up with about 30 names of people uh, for whom he was grateful because of the influence they'd had in his life. So I'm asking you for five. Okay, no pressure here and no compulsion. Is there, is there anybody that, you know, as in the past couple of minutes as you thought about that, you thought, oh yeah, there's so-and-so. And that's a really, it's a, there's a really cool story about it. Is there anybody that would like to share what you've reflected on or where your mind has gone with that? Brilliant, yeah. So uh, that, that whole thing of parents and the fact that your parents had that innocent missionary and these people were coming into your home and you could see the integrity of their life. Yeah, thank you. So one other? Ha, huh. yeah, excellent. The guy that I mentioned who came up with a 30 as he walked through a labyrinth um, said the first one that he came up with was I think an English teacher uh, in secondary school. Because he was a scientist, the, the, the guy, my friend, was a scientist. But the English teacher gave him a love of reading. And that, of course, then, you know, set him on such a path through the rest of his life. It's very similar to, to yours. Thank you. So that's the first, the first thing. Let's go to the second thing. That the second thing that I think leaders need to learn is how to navigate deserts. And this, in terms of the story of Moses, really takes us into Exodus chapter 3. Um, and uh, or the, end of, the end of chapter 2, I beg your pardon, takes us to the end of chapter 2, just to the beginning of chapter 3. Now, this is the middle 40 years of Moses' life. There's very little given to us in terms of the narrative. You know, you're, it's, just, it's just a few verses. Uh, it, he ends up in the desert. It's that incident where he, he kills the Egyptian, has to go on the run, ends up in Midian, in the Midianite desert. Um, and, you know, there's, there's almost nothing given and yet, I've been drawn to this bit, and I, I just think, you know, actually, it's possible to, to make some observations about some very profound things that were going on during that, that period of life. And here are just a few things that I've, that, that I've thought that I think, I hope I'm not pushing the text too much or trying to read too much into the text to, to get these. Um, just a comment about the desert. Sorry, just, just let me give you, give you that from Dan Allender's book, Leading with a Limp. Before Moses led a, led a nation, he wandered in Midian for 40 years, tended sheep. Our days spent in the desert may be shorter, but they will be no less agonizing because they are a season of death. A leader's dreams must die if a deep soul is to be born. Idealism may get us into the fray, but it is the loss of all we cherish that begins to form in us a heart capable of leading others reluctantly and humbly. I think it's a very profound statement from, from Dan Allender. And you look at Moses at age 40. Um, Moses' ambition at 40 was to be a freedom fighter. And he thought, killing the Egyptian will send a signal to the Hebrews that I am the guy they've been waiting for. 40 years later, when God calls him to be the leader of the Hebrews, he basically says, would you please just leave me alone? I'm looking after these few sheep in the desert. Please find someone else to do it. What on earth happened in the middle? 40 years, he got older, that was one thing. But somehow his passion and his vision were taken from him during those 40 years. The wilderness does that. And I think for leaders, it's something that you've got to learn to navigate. So here are five observations. Number one, the wilderness and a wilderness experience, it's not just about being in a literal desert, but the wilderness experience is about the, the difference between hope and reality. So unanticipated circumstances. You end up somewhere where you never thought you would be. You thought, you know, I'm here and this is what I think is going to happen and how positive I think it's going to be and all the difference that I'm going to make. But actually it's not like that. And probably any of us, you know, if we look at our lives and we look back 20 years or longer even for those of us who are old enough to go that far back you know life doesn't always turn out in all of its aspects the way we thought it would and there are some seasons when that means disappointment hope versus reality the second thing about it is it was a place of abandoned dreams and that's what i really already touched on that you know his dream of leading the people well forget that you know i'm i'm not gonna i'm not gonna do that third thing and a more positive thing unexpected allies 
you know, he finds a wife and he also finds a father-in-law. And you'll know a little bit about the story of Moses and know that Jethro, his father-in-law, becomes a very significant ally to him at a later stage. Um, I sometimes think about Jethro. You know, you, you imagine the first encounter that, that Moses has with Jethro, his father-in-law. You know, Jethro says to the, the, his, his daughters, including Zipporah, who's going to marry Moses, well, how did, you, how did you get on with watering the sheep today? He seemed to have got things done quite quickly. Said, yeah, yeah, there was an Egyptian, which is interesting because he must have looked like an Egyptian. There's an Egyptian who, who uh, came along and he helped us. Where is he? Oh, we left him out there. Bring him back. Give him some, we'll give him something to eat. Can you imagine the conversation? So you're an Egyptian then? Well, no, I'm not actually. Um, I'm, I'm a Hebrew. Um, and why have you left Egypt? Well, I left Egypt because I murdered somebody. You know, it's not the kind of person that you would say, hey, would you like to now marry my daughter? It's not, it's not the, you know, you wonder about that. But, but Jethro obviously provided acceptance and understanding for him and actually becomes a very uh, critical figure in, in his life. Honest realization. The wilderness is a place of honest realization. Um, and for, for this, I, I go to the naming of his son, whom he calls Gershom, which means foreigner. It sounds like the word for a foreigner or a temporary resident. And there I see Moses naming the reality of where he was. He, he was not a, he didn't belong in Midian. He didn't belong in Egypt. And the Hebrews didn't want him. It's a pretty difficult place to be, actually. Uh, and and, and the, in the naming of his son, it meant that every time he called his son by his name, he was reminding himself of this reality of not really belonging anywhere. Um, honest realization. One of the things that I think as Christians we're tempted to do when we're in the wilderness is to say, everything is fine, God is good all the time, you know? And God is good, and he's good all the time. But everything is not always fine. And sometimes we're, we don't, we don't uh, acknowledge it. Um, but the desert needs to become a place of honest realization where we say, this is what's actually happening here. And I've got a question about that in a moment. And the final thing about the desert is the desert's a place of transforming encounter because it's there that he meets God, on the edge of the desert that he meets God, and God calls him. So here's a question. This is a quote from a, a woman called Erica Brown. She's a Jewish uh, scholar and writer who's written a book on the story of Moses. And she said, what matters most can only truly be discovered where there are few distractions. Sometimes you get pushed out into the desert. You don't really choose to be there. Other times you maybe take yourself into a quiet place like, like um, Will talked about last night. Jesus early in the morning going to the desert place to seek God. What matters most can only be truly discovered where there are few distractions. Take a moment and think, have you been in a desert experience, either voluntary or involuntary, and you've actually found this to be true, that when the noise kind of settles, that you actually begin to identify what, what really matters? Take a moment just to reflect on that. Have you been there? And what was it like? And why was it important? Let me just keep us moving. Um, just to, uh, trying to keep aware of the march of time. Um, but you know, I encourage you to go on reflecting. And let me just say, just on that desert one, it can be a very painful place. It can be very discouraging because you sort of think, you know, has God forgotten about me? Um, am I ever going to get out of this? Um, it can be like that. <coughs> so. Um, and it, that's why there's, it's important to watch out for those allies who may come along and be an encouragement to you. But the most encouraging thing of all is it, it does become a place of encounter. It has the, place, the potential to be a place of encounter. Third thing, um, we also need to learn to get beyond our excuses. And the excuses of Moses is probably one of the best known bits of Moses' life. So chapter three and chapter four, uh, just a quick summary. Uh, who am I? God says, I'm going to send you to do this. Moses says, well, who am I that I would do that? Second question, who are you? When God says, it doesn't really matter who you are because I'm going to be with you. Well, who, who are you anyway? And there's that, I am who I am or I will be who I will be. God you know, reveals himself to Moses through his name. And then what about them? You know, okay, it's all very well. You've told me who you are. You've said you're going to be with me. But suppose I go to them and they don't actually believe that I've sent you, or that, that you've sent me. What's going to happen then? God has to answer that. And then he says, well, what about my 
my, my issue, my, he seems to have had a, a stammer, uh, some sort of speech impediment that Moses had. He talks about that, so I'm not really very good at talking, which is a kind of an, an odd thing to say because Moses is you know, in the middle of this, sort of going toe to toe with the Lord. Everything the Lord says, he's got a word to come back on. Um, so he, he, but he's got a stammer and thinks that's gonna hinder him and God says, look, I'm, I'm, I'm the God who takes care of those kind of things. And then he says, finally, well, what about, what about someone else? You know, and God brings Aaron along. There, there are excuses uh, that, that he keeps throwing up. Basically, he doesn't want to do the thing. He just wants to be left alone. But all of these excuses, and I think there's stuff for us to learn. We don't have time to go into the detail of it, but there is stuff to, for us to learn about every one, from every one of those excuses. You know, who am I? Sounds so humble, and sometimes it is, and sometimes it's an appropriate it's an appropriate response. Who am I that God would entrust this to me? It's a good place to start. But sometimes there's a false humility uh, that actually prevents us from recognizing maybe the ways in which God has equipped us or recognizing the call of God on our lives or recognizing the fact that God has promised to be with us and he's promised to use us. We need to, to learn to distinguish between those things. Um, who are you? The importance of actually knowing who God is. And it's wonderful how God, how God presents himself. I will be who I will be. Hey, nobody's going to tie me down. Whatever you're going to need me to be, I will be that. Whatever these people are going to need me to be, I will be that. And I will provide completely for them. What about them? You know, I tried this before. You know, maybe Moses has that thought in his mind. I tried this 40 years ago and they kicked me out. And, you know, if you've been a leader, you've, you've probably heard that thing, especially in churches, isn't it true? Oh, yeah, we tried that once, but it didn't work. So we're not going to try it again. Of course, the other side of it is, no, we've never done that before. I'm not going to try it now. Uh, either way, you don't do, you don't do anything. Um, but it can be very painful to think, well, we did try something before and, we were re- and I was rejected for it. And now you're asking me to go back and do it again. So there are various excuses that we might bring up, and that takes us to the next uh, question. Um, as you maybe reflect on where you are and you know, in your, your, your sense of calling, and I don't want to restrict that simply to people who maybe are leading churches or you're a missionary or something like that, but, but wherever you are, the sense in which God has led you to where you are and God has equipped you, um, how, how, are you doing and how are you doing in terms of discerning that call? And how are you doing in terms of responding to it? And what are the kinds of excuses that you would typically throw up to say, well, I'm not going to do this. Again, take a moment, just, just right. this is quite personal. Uh, but take a moment and, and just reflect a little bit on that. Are you a reluctant leader? Which, by the way, is not actually always a bad thing. Sometimes it's good as long as you don't stay reluctant. Number four, then, next thing is learning to share the, share the load. And there are really a couple of episodes that, that come up in Moses' story that, that I think demonstrate this quite powerfully. One is in Exodus 18, and it's the famous one. You probably heard people talk about it, and, you know, Jethro, yeah, he was the first business consultant, um, which, you know, maybe he was in some sense, but the story is about a lot more than that. Um, but that's the incident where Jethro sees that Moses is really not handling the workload terribly well. And he says, you're going to burn yourself out and you're going to wear out all these people. Um, so he comes up with a very wise, a very wise uh, way of, of handling things. And I think it's a reminder to us that, that leaders can be bottlenecks. And it doesn't matter whether you know, you're at school leadership or church leadership or business leadership or whatever it might be. If everything has to come through you and be done by you, you know, there comes a point where that's just not feasible anymore. Um, you've got to learn that leadership is shared. And I think in terms of church stuff, that's, that's a really important thing. Problem is that some of us are kind of slow to get there because, you know, there is a thing, I think it's an, you know, maybe it's an unspoken thing. I'm not going to get a lot of detail on it uh, the, the, during the seminar, but um, I think often, you know, we, leadership, unfortunately, I think has a certain ring of status to it. And I think we think, okay, I'm a leader, I've got to, I've got to lead, I've got to take my responsibility, I've got a certain amount of power. I don't want to give it away to anybody because if I give it away to people, then what am I here for? 
Um, and, and I think what we need to learn, um, and it takes a long time to learn this, but what we need to learn is that you can actually give away responsibility and you can give away power and it does not diminish you as a leader. I think it brings you into a, a fuller understanding of what leadership is. Um, so that's Exodus 18. The other one is, is in Numbers 11. And this is an intriguing one because this is, and again, I don't, don't have time to go into a lot of the detail of it, but note the reference, number, Numbers 11. People are complaining. Um, Moses has had enough. If you're going to treat me like this, then just end it now. That's, his, that's, his, that's the, the place he's got to. And God says, tell you what, get the elders, bring them together, and I'll take some of the spirit that's on you and put it on the elders. And so the elders come out to Moses out at the tent of meeting, and uh, that's what happens, and they prophesy. And then this guy comes out from the, 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 the center of the community, and he says, Do you know, there's a couple of the elders, Eldad and Medad, and they didn't come out here to the tent, but they're prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, who's Moses' young assistant, says, Oh, Moses, do you want me to stop them? And there's a lot of speculation, particularly among some of the Jewish writers on this, is what, what on earth were they, what on earth were Eldad and Medad prophesying about? And Moses says, very wise, he says to Joshua, he says, Joshua, are you jealous on my account? You know, Joshua's, this is, Mo, Moses is Joshua's mentor, and he's Joshua's hero. And, and Joshua can't bear the thought that somehow these guys have been given ministry ability and they're not part of us. They didn't get it directly from Moses. They got it somehow independently. And he sees that as a threat. And Moses' answer is, is really quite remarkable. And he says, look, don't be jealous in my account. Would that all of the Lord's people were prophets and that he would pour out his spirit on all of them. Now that obviously is ultimately fulfilled in the day of Pentecost. So that chapter has massive implications for the church. But there's a, a massive thing there for leaders to learn. And it's this idea of, I, I cannot take this responsibility and make it all about me. I've got to be willing to share it and to be willing to say, you know, let God pour out his spirit on whomever he wants to pour out his spirit. That's what we need. We did all the Lord's people were prophets. So it's got to be shared. Now, obviously, that, it's easy to say, um, but uh, there are things like humility and trust that need to be developed uh, for, for shared leadership to happen. Um, there's a lot more that could be said about that, but there's a principle that, that's there. Which takes me to this question for reflection for those of you, particularly those of you who are maybe in, in more senior leadership, where you've got senior levels of responsibility. How easy do you find it to share responsibility with others? Do you find it easy to, to give it away? Not, not abdicate. There's a difference between abdicating and delegating, by the way. Uh, abdicating is just saying, hey, I don't care who does this. I don't care how it's done. But delegating says, I still care about who does it and how it's done, but I'm not going to be the one who does it because there are other people who can do it. Maybe they can do it better than I do. How easy do you find that? And if you don't find it easy, then why is that? Is it because there's not enough people around? Or is it because, oh, well, there's nobody who could do it as well as I would do it? Or because, well, there are people who would do it better than I would do it, and if they do it better than I would do it, then it makes me look sort of redundant? Is it a pride issue? An insecurity thing? Some people would say that the biggest problem that people f face in terms of delegating it's actually a psychological issue. It's not an organizational issue. It's not, I don't know how to delegate, but it's more, I don't want to because I'm scared of how that's going to reflect on me. So think about that for a moment. And then we'll go to this one. Um, so learn to find your identity in the love of God. I used to think, where does that come in, in Moses' story? And where I would go to in this, and a whole chapter on this, and, and I, I think I, I found it interesting that some of the people who've read that my book um, really come back to chapter 5 and say it's a chapter that meant the most to them um, about the love of God. And it's in Exodus 33, you know, there's this whole crisis going on, don't send us up if you're not going to come with us and so on. And the Lord says to Moses, you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. 
Now, I think there's overlap here with what Will has been talking about, particularly um, the first night that, that he spoke on the main stage, where he talked about leading from grace, not towards grace. In other words, we don't lead or minister in order to win God's favor, but we lead out of a place of knowing that, that God has accepted us and God has grounded us. A um, number of years ago when I was doing um, my doctoral work, uh, I was looking at crucible experiences in the lives of Christian leaders. And one of the things that struck me as we sort of reviewed in depth the lives of, of various people, I interviewed them uh, over, you know, over several hours and um, talked about their story. And there were several people told me stories, remarkable stories, of how it was as though God had gone out of his way to give them a deep personal understanding of his love. And I find with other leaders that I've talked to as well, I have a little podcast that I do, and it's a theme that comes up from time to time in the podcast. Where people tell me about an experience that they've had where God has reassured them of his love, sometimes in quite remarkable ways. Um, it's enough to make us think, oh, that really matters, doesn't it? That we understand that God loves us and we work from that place rather than work towards that place. There's a security that comes from it. And this is a little quote from Henry Nouwen. Um, and Henry Nouwen said, you are not what you do, although you do a lot. You may want to take, if you want to take a photograph of that, um, please feel free to do that. You're not, I, by the way, the, I, I wasn't able to put all the slides on the notes because um, I think we're trying to save trees. There's a double-sided, one double-sided page, was it? Um, you're not what you do, although you do a lot. You're not what you've collected in terms of friendships and connections, though you might have many. You're not the popularity that you've received. You're not the success of your work. You're not what people say about you, whether they speak well or whether they speak poorly about you. All these things that keep you quite busy, quite occupied, and often quite preoccupied are not telling you the truth about who you are. I'm here, it says now, and to remind you in the name of God that you are the beloved daughters and sons of God, and that God says to you, I have called you from all eternity, and you are engraved from all eternity in the palms of my hands. You are mine. You belong to me, and I love you with an everlasting love. We need to know that, and we need to build on that. And I think with, with Moses, um, to hear from God, you know, I, I know you by name, and you found favor in my sight, that must have been an amazing thing to hear. He's experienced loads of amazing things, but that must have been an absolutely incredible thing to hear those words. Um, a couple of people have, have told me, have, have given me this little expression. Um, Malcolm Duncan, whom some of you will know, Malcolm talked to me about an experience at a Larry Norman concert. If some of you remember Larry Norman, uh, he of the long blonde hair. And uh, so Malcolm, years ago, was a young Christian, young Christian leader, was at a concert in Scotland, and Larry Norman was, you know, singing, and partway through, Larry Norman stopped, and he just looked out in the crowd, and this is what he said, there's nothing you can do that'll make God love you any more, and there's nothing you can do that will make him love you any less, and you'll never disillusion him, because he never had any illusions about you in the first place. And Malcolm, and this is, you know, this story's public domain. Malcolm told it to me for a podcast recording. It's, it's out there. Um, Malcolm told me that, that that just broke him, uh, had a profound effect on him emotionally and transforming his life, that awareness of the love of God. It doesn't seem like the sort of stuff you talk about in terms of leadership, sure it doesn't. You sort of think leadership, oh, it's going to be about vision and goals and communication and resolving conflict and, you know, big achievements and all of that. You know, this foundation that's there, that as leaders, we, we, need to, we need to dwell on this. And so our relationship with God then uh, becomes so important. And yet, you know, sometimes like Martha, it just seems there's so much to do. Uh, sometimes we're so easily distracted. You know, we sit down to read our Bible and we've got to check our phones before we do it. I think we've, you know, so many of us struggle with that. Um, sometimes for those of us who are in Christian ministry, ministry becomes a substitute for our relationship with God. That's a very subtle thing. It's very real. 
Um, and ruts and routines. Sometimes we, we end up, we lose sight of the goal of why we're spending time reading or praying or whatever, whatever spiritual exercises it might be. We lose sight of the goal and we're just ticking boxes and, and getting, th getting through a list. Plenty to think about there. I'm, I'm going to just try to keep moving, but you may want to think about which of those four barriers really to relationship with God uh, you find uh, most, most troubling. The next, which is number six, learn how to handle conflict and criticism. Um, if, if, you, if you have just become a leader in something and it's Christian and you think, oh, great, because it's Christian, I'm never going to have to deal with any conflict. I'm never going to have to deal with any criticism. You, you need a major reassessment of, of your expectations. Uh, any kind of leadership there is going to be criticism. Ron Heifetz is the name of a, an, another American uh, leadership scholar. And uh, he talks about leaders leading change. And there's always going to be you know, pushback on it, and leaders need to hold their nerve. Uh, Balzinger will talk about some of that stuff in, that, in, in, that, in, his, in his books. Um, but Ron Heifetz says there's a sense in which leadership is the art of disappointing people at a rate they can absorb, okay? So you are gonna disappoint people. Uh, some people, you're gonna to change too many things that they don't want you to change, so they're gonna be disappointed. Some people, you're not gonna change enough for them, so they're gonna be disappointed. So Heifetz said, you, know, you, gotta, you gotta learn uh, what is the rate of disappointment uh, that people can absorb, and, and that's learning that the art of that is, is, is that leadership. Some people think that's really cynical. Um, and of course, there's a positive side to change and all the rest of it, um, but th but there will be there will be criticism, and uh, most people who've been in leadership for any amount of time will have a certain number of scars. Some of those scars will be quite deep, um, and will have come from places of of great pain. Um, I think in in recent you know for those any of you involved in church leadership, whether it's vocationally or as elders or whatever. Um, I think the past couple of years have just brought so much, you know, you know, where you know, churches are saying, well, if you say that we've got to wear masks, we're not coming. And others who say, well, if people are able to come without masks, we're not coming. You, you know, what, what do you do in that? I mean, how on earth do you lead in that when you've got, you know, diametrically opposed? And, and I think one of the sad things about the past couple of years is that the Christian church has we just swallowed the mood of the world and we've become so angry and so unreasonable you can't, even, you can't even have a proper discussion about it, you know? And church leaders find themselves in the middle of that and think, what on earth am I meant to do? How can I lead this? So criticism uh, and conflict are inevitable, sadly, uh, even in Christian leadership. Um, I, I would make these observations just very quickly. I mean, all this stuff's in the book, so it's a good incentive to buy the book, but... Um, so some critique is necessary for growth. Uh, you know, if you, if you never received any critique, then you never change. You know, you need people speaking in. And you, but you've got to learn to distinguish between the kind of critique that's going to help you to grow and the kind of harsh, professional critic that is just going to hammer you all the time. And maybe you don't listen to those people quite so much, but you do keep ears open for people who are going to going to say something that you maybe don't necessarily want to receive, but you know you need to receive. Number two, not everybody wants to follow your leadership. That is just the reality. Read the story of Moses. They did not want to follow his leadership. You know, hey, you've, you, you, you came with all these promises. Uh, you told us that you're going to, you were going to be delivered. You've gone to Pharaoh. You've spoken to Pharaoh, and we're now worse off than we were when you started. Not everybody will want to follow your leadership. Third, you need to learn to hold your nerve. Um, if you believe that God, uh, there's a difference between stubbornness and conviction. Uh, stubbornness is bad, mostly, uh, but conviction is good. Sometimes we don't know the difference between them though. Uh, and you probably need other people to help you to realize, oh yeah, you've got a conviction there, hold your nerve. Oh, you've just been flat out stubborn. You need to change. And it's thing, I don't think you can always perceive it yourself because you deceive yourself. And you think, well, I'm just a person of principle. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up on my principle. And you've just been stubborn. It's just a you know, bad personality trait, character trait. 
Um, so, but do learn to, to hold your nerve because, and I think especially, you know, in the years to come, I don't think leadership is going to get any easier. So learn to hold your nerve. And, and this, this, I think, I, I think for me, one of the things that, one of the things that probably most struck me in writing this book is this idea that leadership is a sacred trust. It is not all about you. If you make leadership about you, and it's something that gives you status and gives you a sense of significance, then you will want to hold on to it and you will not want anybody to touch it and you don't want anybody to criticize you. But if you realize that it's a sacred trust that's been given to, given to you by God, then you will want the very best outcomes from your leadership. And you will realize that sometimes that's going to happen as you receive critique from other people. So there's another question. I'm not going to really have time to, to reflect on this right now, but there's another question. Do you tend to view criticism as something painful to be avoided, or do you see it as something productive to be welcomed? I'll leave that question with you, and I'll, and I'll just move on. We go to one, do we, Johnny? Quarter two? Ooh, right, okay. Really going to have to quick. Learn that you're not the finished article. It's about character. Um, constant growth in character. Um, there's so much to say about that. Um, learn about unresol un unresolved patterns in your life. Uh, learn about unguarded devotion where your heart is drawn away to other things. Several things to learn there, but don't forget the grace of God. Um, and then the final thing, learn to prepare the next generation. Whatever your leadership assignment is, it is temporary. Maybe 40 years maybe five, but it is temporary. You will hand it on. Do you know, I've been coming to New Horizons since the mid-1990s. I've missed a few years, but I've been coming a lot uh, since the mid-1990s, which is a fairly long time. One of the most encouraging things I think about New Horizon is the way that it's been able to kind of regenerate itself across generations. You know, I, look at, I looked at the board, you know, thinking about the board the other night, thinking, these people are all in their 30s and 40s. I'm in my 60s, you know. And I see people wandering about, not wandering, that's the wrong image. I see people walking about the tent and say, oh, there's so-and-so. He used to be up front on the stage. You know, he used to be the chair or making the announcements. So there's somebody there and, you know, um, they've been involved in this. And, you know, I've seen, you know, somebody who's spoken on the platform, done the Bible teaching, saw, you know, visiting a couple of days ago. You know, you see all of that and you realize, do you know, this thing's been going for over 30 years, and the old leaders have, you know, many of them are still around, but they've handed it on. They've known how to hand it on, and there's a new generation that's coming, and that is tremendously encouraging, and I think especially as we get older, but, but, but all of us, I mean, really, once you're 40, I think you need to start thinking about this. Um, you need to be realizing your leadership is, is only a temporary assignment. Therefore, what are you doing to prepare the next generation. And that really, and that's the story of Moses and Joshua, um, how, how Joshua is the answer to his prayer. And that's a question for us to reflect on. And that's really all I'm going to have time to say. Do you, you, you trying to get something from that, that last slide, Johnny Way? Oh, it's, it's gone, yeah. So that's, that's it. I apologize that um, time has maybe, I, I thought it would an hour and a quarter, but sorry, that's my, that's my mistake. Um, so apologies that it, it, we haven't got enough time. If you need to, dash and collect kids and all the rest of it. If you want to take a moment, if there's any questions or comments or anything like that, um, I'm, you know, we can take it very quickly. <laughs> what, would, what would I say to my 20-year-old self? Um, that's a great question. And for people, my podcast is the Leadership Journey podcast. And I always ask people at the end of it. That's very clever. That's very clever. Um, what I would say to my 20-year-old self, um, you'd, you'd expect me to have this all prepared, which I don't. I would say, learn that God really loves you. Uh, learn not to take yourself too seriously. And learn, learn not to take your, not, learn not to hold your leadership too tightly. Don't make it about you. Is that all right? Thank you. Thanks for asking. Good question. Um, I think that's probably it. You know, if, the, if, it, if it's whetted your appetite, there's a lot more in the book. And I'll just pray. Father, thank you for this time. Uh, we thank you for uh, these people who've come here and for the desire to, to learn and grow in their spheres of leadership. And just, Father, we pray, and I pray for, for each of them as they, as they lead and as they serve you and as they seek you, 
that your hand would be upon them, that their leadership would be healthy and fruitful. And so be with us the rest of this day. Thank you for this event, uh, that we've been able to be here. Uh, thank you for this event and for your hand with us this week. And we pray that you continue with us in our different spheres as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen. New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989. And we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry.